Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Ross. We are in 1 John chapter 4, and this is one of my favorite uh, passages in Scripture, although I will admit it was a favorite one, in, uh, and I abused it or used it in a wrong way. It was very zealous um, in times past where uh, I got excited when people came to my door because I thought they wanted to fight about uh, theology. So we will uh, we'll see. That's not how I approached it this time. God has humbled me a little bit more, and um, it's, been, uh, it's been an awesome experience this week wrestling with this. As... Um, Many of you know, uh, I was an English teacher here locally at the uh, high school for 10 years until Jesus changed my plans about year seven, but I continued to teach as we planted the church, and I love teaching. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed teaching, did not want to leave teaching, but Jesus said, you're leaving teaching, and uh, it's been glorious um, and painful all at the same time. But I was uh, a very hard English teacher, Um, and... I told my students at the beginning of each year that I didn't need any uh, 16 or 17-year-old friends, Uh, some of them got confused about that, that I was not there to uh, relive my high school experience because I wasn't cool in high school, so I'd be a cool teacher and be all nice to them. There are teachers that are living that. Um, And I also told them that I was more committed to them learning truth than it was with them leaving with a good grade, to which many of them were not very excited about. Um, They struggled a bit with what I would describe as my unorthodox ways, uh, because many teachers, not all, but many teachers did not really expect them to think. And I don't say that as, uh, I mean, I was a teacher, so I was in that lot. And I don't say that to say that, you know, the school system is evil and no teachers want people to think, but I grew up in the school system, as you probably did, for 18 years and didn't think much, was never challenged to think, but I got really good at regurgitating what I was taught. I would memorize and spit back and then hopefully remember it. Um, Typically, for the typical teacher, uh, if a student was present, breathing, asleep or not, um, but they're still breathing, and they were puking out whatever I would give them in, in terms of information, then they passed, 
even if they didn't learn anything. I know, sad. My class was a bit different. Um, it's not that I had a high percentage of failure, but it was above average. Um, I jettisoned the uh, politically correct textbooks because they're just junk, quite frankly, but they really uh, make nice, um, well, take up a lot of room on the shelf, I probably should say. Uh, I ignored or didn't like the cheesy handouts that came with them. Um, they just were just as meaningless as the textbooks. Um, I refused to give multiple choice tests because I just knew how to beat those without, you know, all the above, you know, or just kind of a uh, process of elimination. You could get around those. And I quit lecturing about what I would consider trivial facts that would help you on a game show, but not necessarily equip you for life. And I had heard at some point when I, when I started teaching or read that education was what you remember when you forget everything you've learned. You may have heard that, so it's like just a little bit of what you might actually get. And so after only a few years as a new teacher, I began to see um, a bunch of students that, who were very good at remembering knowledge, facts, stuff, and then just as good at forgetting it days, if not hours, after I tested them on it. It would just be like, gone. They could cram, and then it would not be necessarily remembered, um, except maybe a few tidbits. Now, after watching student after student uh, get grades and receive diplomas uh, and basically uh, become good citizens, as in they were 18 and could vote, which was kind of scary, they would leave immature, a lot of them, not all, somewhat ill-equipped, um, and quite frankly, fairly apathetic toward life uh, for the most part. And so I changed uh, my philosophy after seeing this. I adopted somewhat of a new philosophy, um, and it was a philosophy that was influenced by um, American novelist uh, Ernest Hemingway. You may have read some of his books. Um, before he blew his head off with a shotgun, he was asked a question by a reporter uh, of what the most important quality someone needed to be a successful writer. And he responded with a built-in, shockproof crap detector. I like that. So I adopted that as my educational philosophy, that I wanted, not just as writers, but students who went through my classes to develop a really good crap detector. And the reason why is because we all know that the world is full of a bunch of people that are full of it. You know what I mean? It, it's true. And very easily, people fall victim to, I say victim to, they just follow after, they consume, they believe, whatever, because they're not able to detect it when it's there. So I've learned, honestly, that the job description that I created, or the philosophy for a teacher, is very similar to a pastor. There's not much difference. And what I mean is that a pastor is charged, especially according to Ephesians 4, with equipping the saints with a really good spiritual crap detector. Okay? Now... Another name for this skill, to, to help you whose ears are burning every time I say the word crap, is discernment. 
We're talking about discernment. And discernment is the ability, the learned ability, I believe, to distinguish or tell the difference between a truth and a lie. And discernment requires a certain amount of knowledge. It also requires a certain amount of curiosity. You have to care. It also requires a certain amount of commitment to stay in something and really look at something. And then it also requires a certain amount of self-control to not assume, show partiality, a bunch of stuff. Discernment is what I believe that really important place Intention between superstition, where you believe everything, and skepticism, where you believe nothing. Okay? That's discernment. That's where, as a pastor, my job is to make sure you live in. And discernment isn't like, hey, I finally discerned everything. It's an ongoing process where we are always discerning, always questioning, always investigating, always asking. And I see, maybe you do as well, a huge need for discernment in our churches today. Yes, in our children, but in the schools, but in our churches, many well-meaning Christians, many loving, kind, love-to-hang-around Christians are very gullible, very naive, and very ignorant. And... That is not only sad, but it's very dangerous. We need discernment. On the road, if, if discernment was a road that we could walk, I believe every road has two ditches, two extremes you can fall into. With discernment, we're talking about Christian discernment, what I see is in one ditch a bunch of cultic Christians. Cultic Christians are those that consume and believe, honestly, a bunch of false teachers and some of their freaky teachings. Okay? And there are some that are super freaky. Okay? Those are the cultic Christians. They will call themselves Christians, but they are following a false teacher. Then, on the other side of the ditch, what I think I'll call cultural Christians. And cultural Christians are the ones that basically devote themselves to anything labeled Christian. And that could be Anything that's in the Christian bookstore, on the Christian radio, on Christian TV, if it's got Christian attached to it, it must be okay, is their thought. Now, the church needs, without doubt, faithful preachers, faithful shepherds, Bible-thumping, Jesus-loving preachers. But, I think more than anything... What we need, what our church needs, what all churches need, are discerning Christian men and discerning Christian women and discerning Christian husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, and discerning children. Children can handle truth at a very young age. And it's best we should teach them and not enable them to be the adolescents that we see growing to about age 25 today. They need to be discerning. They need to be able to separate and distinguish truth, God's truth, from the devil's crap, quite frankly. Now, John begins chapter 4 here with, I love this verse, telling the church to test every spirit. 
And up to this point, for three chapters, he has shown how belief in certain things demonstrates spiritual maturity. And in chapter 4 here, in these six verses, he's going to show how unbelief in certain things demonstrates spiritual maturity. We ought not believe everything is the point. And he says in verse 1, Beloved, and this is a loving thing. He's not just like tapping a ruler like you know some mean teacher. He is speaking out of love, and I pray that you hear me do the same. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John says, and you may or may not believe this, John says that the world, whether it comes through TV, people, radio, internet, wherever, the world is full of true and false prophets, both. And they all proclaim a different message. And behind whatever message these voices are throwing out, there is a spirit. And it is either the spirit of God or it is the spirit of the devil. And I know a lot of people are like, as soon as you throw devil on there, it's like, oh, you're getting all freaky. That's what the Bible teaches. There's wisdom from above, there's wisdom from below. There's the spirit of God and the spirit of the world That is the devil. There is the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. There is the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So all the messages that make truth claims are coming from one of two places. Now, if we're not careful to test these spirits, to evaluate what's being said, to discern, we very easily could devote ourselves to false truth and lies, demonic teachings that actually lead us away from God, but still might feel good. It's not like the devil wants, intends to give us stuff that feels bad and clearly, well, we're not going to do that because it's ridiculous. He gives us exactly what we want as long as it leads us away from God and God's people. So we have to be discerning. But I think before we test or ask what the test questions are, Let me just make sure we understand, and this is where I had to sit this week, remember why we test it all, okay? Um, I told you that I used to use this verse and like this verse because when you sit down with people who would be considered cultists, your Mormons, your Jehovah Witnesses, people are coming to say, I'm a Christian, yet they believe something very differently than Orthodox historic Christianity. Typically, the conversation would... um, I won't say degenerate, but eventually it gets to a place where they say, well, the Spirit's told me this. And I go, fantastic. The Spirit's told me just the opposite. What are we going to do? Well, the Holy Spirit, I understand what you said, and it's told me just the opposite, that you're wrong. Well, he's told me, we can go back and forth, but what are we going to do? We have to test. And the reality is, I used to get really excited about testing. Like, Who's at the door? Well, there's Mormons there, honey. Fantastic. Give me about two hours, okay? And I would just be excited about it. Sinfully so. Sinfully so. 
I was more interested in like, oh man, I've got like my double barrels of truth. Like, they throw in a verse, I'm like, oh, nice try. Try this one, you know? And I was like all over it. It reminded me of my, my dad. We used to sail a lot, and we'd be in the middle of the sound, right? Vast, you know, a lot of water everywhere, and you see a sailboat miles away, and he'd go, that guy wants to race. <laughs> what? You know? And so I thought, they're coming to my door like, they want to throw down. That's the only reason they're coming. They want to battle, and they're going to battle. Hi, oh, I'm a Christian, all right, and then you just go. And I say that because when you talk about testing the spirits, if we're not careful, and I say this as someone who's been guilty of it, if we're not careful, we can get more enamored and excited about finding error than we can in finding truth. And that's sinful. And so, if you ever read John 14, which is from John's Gospel, obviously, it speaks much about the relationship between Jesus and truth. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus doesn't say, I am truthful, I speak truthfully, I like truth. He says he is the truth, the embodiment of God's truth. So to say that you love Jesus is to say that you love the truth. And Christians love God's truth because they love Jesus. Okay? They have been transformed from the inside out, which has changed several things. One is their disposition towards sin. And the other, among many other things, is a disposition toward God's Word. What was once foolish, which was once confusing, what was once maybe even repulsive or offensive, has now become the source of life. Our eyes have been opened for those who are in Christ. It is now something not to be repulsed by, but something to delight in, something that protects us, something that helps us to grow, something that guides our decision making. So when we talk about testing, we test not so much so, or because we hate lies and liars. We test because we love truth. And we love Jesus. We hunger for God's truth. Read Psalm 119. It speaks about hungering to know God's truth, to delight in God's truth. Asking God to help us be a sponge for His truth. I don't know if you've ever prayed that. I often pray that, because I just, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't learn or don't know. And I'm always like, Lord, just, just teach me more, please. Make my brain a sponge, because as I get older, I seem to forget a lot more. Help me to learn your truth, because as all God's children, I believe that life and joy and wisdom and peace and comfort and clarity and prosperity and vision and contentment and satisfaction doesn't come from the world, but from God's Word. I believe that. 
It changes my disposition, so I want to know what God has to say. Because I believe with Him is life. So, with the right motivation then about testing, the question is, what are we supposed to test? And the Bible says, every spirit. And there are spirits that have spoken to all of us that have um, moved us to make certain decisions about what we do, that have caused us to think certain ways and continue to, that have caused us to feel certain ways, and we're supposed to test those things. We're supposed to test everyone and everything that comes into our lives that is teaching us some truth to be sure that it's not a lie. Now, that sometimes comes from a pastor, it sometimes comes from a teacher, sometimes it comes from an author, sometimes it comes from our parents, from our experiences, sometimes it comes from a family member, from a friend, from a lot of things. But just because this thing or this person is popular, just because this thing or person is well-respected, just because this thing or person has or claims spiritual power, just because it uses spiritual language, just because it gives some level of new insight, just because it spiritually leads, we've heard that, I feel the Spirit leading. Just because that's happening, John says, does not mean that the Spirit of God is the one actually empowering. Scary. Sobering. That spirit must be tested. And if that's not enough, I read, I believe, a few sermons ago, Deuteronomy 13, the first six verses of that, speaks about false prophets that will come and be able to do works, be successful, do amazing things. And Moses warned to test the teaching of those who seem to have amazing fruit. And then later in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us to test the fruit of those who seem like they might have amazing teaching. He says specifically, beware of false prophets in verse 17 of Matthew 7, or verse 15, sorry. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You may have heard the story. Uh, I read this recently about Charlie Chaplin. Um, it's a famous story. I guess he was going by a town or visiting a town. They were doing a, a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. So he entered just to, you know, be a jokester. And he got third place. A true story. And you think about that for a second, and you go, you know, very, very simply, we have to go beyond the surface of things. You cannot just blindly trust appearances. But I think that most of us struggle to do that because it's often hard work. It often is inconvenient, and it's often very unpopular to call out to question something that other people really like. 
I made the mistake of doing that in college when I decided in my theology class to write Benny Hinn's A Fraud and a Heretic. Period. Sin. Oh my goodness. You would have thought that I just killed their firstborn child. Because they were going crazy, like, how can you do that? I was a catcher for Benny Hinn. Like, oh my gosh, you freak show, okay? It was crazy. They were so upset. And this is a, I mean, you've got to investigate. If you're a fan of Benny Hinn, you ought not be. He's a false teacher, in case you didn't know. But the reality is, people don't want to go beyond the surface. Let me just tell you, what I don't want to hear it. He made me feel good. I learned something from him. Do you know he raised someone from the dead? I mean, it's like, fantastic, fantastic. What does he teach? What does he teach? We have to go beyond appearances. And if you don't dig, if we don't question, if we don't listen carefully, we may actually fall for a sheep with really big teeth that wants to eat you. Right? Oh, it's just, it was so nice. It was making me feel good. <laughs> They were in a little red riding hood? Hey, Grandma. It's not Grandma anymore, right? That's the whole point. We have to be careful. Now, again, we're on the road between superstition and skepticism. So I'm not saying reject everything. Oh, no, and I'm not saying accept everything. We have to discern. We have to discern. So how do we test them? Once we, okay, I have the right motivation. I understand that. We're going to test everything. Okay, how do we test it? What's the rubric we use? What's the, the, the tool? Well, let me tell you what the test is not. The test is not taking the truth and the fruit, the truth claims they might make or the fruit you might see, and asking if it makes me feel good, asking if it makes sense to me. It's not, is it popular? It's not, does this make me successful? It's not, does this make me friends or enemies? It, it's not, if, does this make my life easier or more difficult? That's not how we test it. Well, if it works for me, it must be good. People do that. They dedicate their lives like, well, I think life's just about happiness. You know, I'm going to find what's pleasurable and then avoid what's painful. That's how I determine things. That's not the test. The test is this. It's whether or not their teaching and their fruit makes much of Jesus, makes much of God. Specifically, whether what they say and what they do aligns with Scripture, aligns with the Word of God. God's Word is our greatest crap detector tool, and it protects us. It's protective from being governed by lots of false teachers, but also what we think, being led astray by what we feel, being led astray by by what we might experience. It guards us from our tendency to worship creation. It guards us from our tendency to follow the world, from our tendency to misread God's will. Don't believe me. Romans 12 verse 2, says this, Do not be conformed to this world, which is our natural default mode, if you didn't know, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's a great question that someone smarter than me asked recently. Why is it that we expect or hope for renewal and transformation when we spend 13 hours on the internet and three minutes in God's Word a week? I'm not trying to be no legalist and tell you how you should do your devotions, but let's just talk about how much time we spend communing with God and His Word. As the tool of transformation, a tool of renewal, 13 hours and 3 minutes on a good week. If we're supposed to test everything, if we're supposed to, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, hold fast to that which is good, we probably need to know what good is. I mean, I, I think if I took a poll, I bet all of us could tell the good places to eat, the good movies, the good beers, the good stories, the good stores, the good electronics, what you should buy, what you shouldn't buy, the good teams to follow, the good bands to listen to. But what's God's good? Are we clear on that? Those things that God has given us to bless us, I, 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 those aren't bad things. But do we know the good things? What God's good is? And God's good is not what I think is worthy of approval. Do we understand that? God's good is what He approves or disapproves. Right? That He sets the standard for what is good. And God's Word is what tells us what that is. In fact, God's Word tells us what is good in everything that actually matters. Let me prove it. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, a verse I've read many times, says, All Scripture, which I'm pretty sure means all, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, verse 17, that, that, right? What will happen as a result of that? The man of God, or woman, may be competent and equipped for every good work. Every good work. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God is what actually equips you to know and to do what God deems good? But let's be honest. Even in testing, right? Even in testing for what is good, testing all things, aligning it with God's Word, I believe in the doctrine of sin. What's that mean? It means I know my flesh very well. And my flesh likes to do bad. Bad being, I like to oppose and do the things God said I ought not do and not do the things God said I should do. I know my flesh very well. And quite honestly, I 
least I'll admit, but I'm the one that only gets to speak, I guess, right now. I'll admit that I don't like to test myself. Many of us refuse to test the spirits we are now listening to or have listened to. We dogmatically refuse to ask ourselves some very hard questions about what we believe, what we think, and what we're doing because it feels very good and it's working for us. And if I start testing the spirits that are talking, I might actually have to change. I might actually have to do something different that, from my perspective, is going to be too painful. I might have to live differently, think differently, feel differently, and I don't really feel like that naturally, so it must be wrong, and I'm going to avoid that. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to love. A person doesn't deserve my respect. I don't want to serve. Nate, take your nail. I just won't test and I won't know. I can plead ignorance. This goes back to what you believe about the Bible. If we say... If you say you believe the Bible is authoritative and yet it's not authoritative enough for you to change the way you live when it says to, you're just lying to yourself and to God. I believe in the doctrine of sin. I know my flesh. I know my tendencies. And so I have a desire to test myself. And testing yourself isn't making a perfect intellectual rubric to measure by. John says, this is what we're to listen to. Verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, in case you know, he who is in the world is the devil. He who is in the Christian, the one saved by Jesus. And the key to finding the truth is the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the forgotten third person of the Trinity that we don't often talk about very much in Reformed, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping churches and never stop talking about in charismatic churches. The Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit with emotion and intellect and will, the Spirit that you can grieve, the Spirit that speaks, the Spirit that was sent by Jesus into our hearts to dwell, helps us. Not only does He help us, the Bible says He comforts us. But more than helping and comfort, Jesus says He teaches us. He is called the Spirit of Truth. The Holy Spirit is that inbuilt crap detector to help us discern truth from error. And he does not teach us brand new revelation, right? Many people have come. I've had conversations with them and said, the Holy Spirit told me this. And I said, the Holy Spirit told me just the opposite. But I have the Holy Spirit. I have a burning in my bosom. I don't care what bad pizza you ate last night. That's not the Holy Spirit. If it's going against What was already taught? Jesus said this in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, 
He, the Spirit, will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And He will glorify Jesus, me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And later He says, The Holy Spirit will come and teach you, remind you what I have taught. He comes and gives us insight into the Word of God. This is where He points us to. Not to go with our feelings, not to go with our intellect, not to go... He teaches us the Word of God, and hopefully that governs those things. Without the Holy Spirit, no one will believe. Without the Holy Spirit, we will not delight in God's Word. We will not understand God's Word. And the absence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the non-believer, the reason why you non-believer do not believe is because the Holy Spirit hasn't made that which is foolish to you the very truth of God. No matter how much a convincing I do, no matter how you know, creative I am with, like, let me tell you how, why you should believe and why you should benefit your life and all that. Doesn't matter. I speak the truth. God takes it with the Holy Spirit. That's on Him. But when the Holy Spirit comes, guess what happens? This old thousands of years, 66 books, becomes not just an old book with good moral teaching. It becomes the living Word of God. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, distinguishing the difference. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now when I say, it's not like we go, oh, well, I have understanding and you don't. The understanding comes from God, not from Sam, not from anybody else. Says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, with the power to discern. It doesn't come from degrees. It doesn't come from pedigree, where you were born. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And through Him we can know the truth. You can know the truth. We can know the difference between Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the true Gospel. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 as another Jesus, another Spirit, a different Gospel. Do you know he said that? that there's only one Jesus. No, there are hundreds. Only one real one. What about spirits? Tons of them. One Holy Spirit. What about Gospels? Tons of them. Prosperity Gospel. Poverty Gospel. 
but one true gospel. And we're responsible and can, by the Spirit, know the difference. So John gives us a test. And he's given us a test through his three chapters up to this point. He's given us some very specific questions to ask, and I'm going to give them to you. And you can test what you believe or test whatever false teacher or teacher that you hear speaking to see if they are aligned with God's Word. And know that this test is like a true-false test, as in there's only one right answer. But there are two options. And I don't know how many tests you give, and I used to give true-false tests, and you have like the uh, um, ambiguous T with an extra line, right? I'm sure you never did that in your testing. They're like, do a little T, and they make a little line, and you go, um, what is that? Uh, what do you think it is? <laughs> right? True? No, I'm sorry. It's actually all wrong. There's no, like, fibbing on the answer. There is an answer. It's a biblical one, and then there's an unbiblical answer. So spirits say all kinds of things, and I'm just telling you, we believe them, and we believe lots of wrong spirits. And we have to test what we believe. Every teacher, every church, every organization, every person has to have an answer to these questions. So here are the questions. And it basically amounts to three different kinds of lies and then questions to appeal to those. One is, the spirit of error tells us lies about Jesus himself. Specifically how we're to relate to God. Second, they tell lies about Jesus' bride. You'll see all the lies are about Jesus. About Jesus' bride. And that specifically is lies about how we're to relate with one another. John's been talking about that. The last one is spirit, uh, lies about the spirit of Jesus. How are we to make decisions? How are we to live? First question, and probably the most important question, which is this. Are the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible, God's actual words. If you don't get that one right, you might as well not take the rest of the test. Okay? Are they actually God's words? Because if they are, we're talking about authority now. And to go against Scripture then is to actually go against God, not just some historical faith that has no bearing in him. Second question. Who's Jesus? What'd he do? What'd he say? Is Jesus, as John talks about, God coming into human flesh? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? Is that who Jesus... Did he really die on the cross for our sins? Did he really take my place as the perfect substitute so that he can live and die as a man? He can give me his perfection, but he also dies on the cross with God's blood bleeding there enough to cover all my sins and yours. Who's Jesus? Third question. What's sin? And am I a sinner? Has sin, um, is that really a problem? 
Or is it just like a, kind of like a bruise waiting to be healed? Or is sin actually rebellion against Jesus? And is sin pervasive through everything? Am I really rebellious in my thoughts and rebellious in my actions and rebellious in, in what I say? Rebellious in how I live? I mean, come on, am I really? Is that my default mode, really? And the fourth question is, if sin is a problem, how is it fixed? That's where you get a bunch of false gospels. Well, it's fixed by me just doing a lot of good things. That's how I fix it. Or it's fixed by just positive thinking. I'm just, there is no such thing as sin in my life. Okay? Or pretending and hiding. Or is sin removed and my relationship restored through the blood of Christ? People have different answers to deal with sin. Fifth one. Well, having been saved by grace, if I believe that, I'm a sinner saved, do I need to obey? Do God's commands have any bearing on me anymore? If the Spirit says, well, you know what? Grace, just do what you want. Grace covers it. Wrong spirit. Wrong number. Jesus said, those who love me will obey my commands. It's not to be accepted. It's because you're accepted. It's not to gain His approval. It's because you already delight in the approval you have. Sixth question, and I think most pertinent today. What the snarf is the church? I'm not sure God would use the word snarf, but He did today. What's the church? Do I have to go to church? Is that even the question I should ask? Am I to love the church, hate the church? I mean, I've had bad experiences with church. What's church? Is it just a, something to attend? In is it optional, or is it actually part of my identity? Can I have Jesus and not the church? Does that work? John says no. John says they go together. Well, I love Jesus, but not his bride. Doesn't make much sense, does it? No, it doesn't. Last couple. Question seven. Am I required to love my brothers? And what's that look like? I mean, do I really have to serve? Do I really have to sacrifice? Did Jesus really lay down his life and then say, do likewise? Well, that's optional, right? That's not really commanded. Well, I don't know. When Jesus said, I'm commanding you, I kind of take that literally myself. Sounds foolish, isn't it? But we listen to that. Well, I don't have to love that guy because he's just really hard to love. Is he in the family? Well, you're not your brother's keeper. That's not Jesus. Wrong number. Number eight. What about the world? I mean, I understand having obligations to my brother. Do I have obligations to the world, or can I just hide away from it? Am I supposed to love the world, or am I supposed to hate the world? The answer, most likely, and should be, you're to love the world like Jesus did. Loving your enemies, proclaiming them to the truth, knowing they're going to hate you. Last two. 
How am I supposed to live? Like, what's the whole purpose of the whole thing? Is it to glorify myself or is it to glorify God? Answering that question will govern a heck of a lot. Because if you begin to understand that your purpose in life is to bring glory to God, and the tool to do that, the best way to do that is to, for God to make you look more like Jesus, go ahead and take a look at what Jesus' life looked like. That's what we are to imitate. That's what God is going to bring into your life so that you look more like him. Much different than how I would choose to glorify. Now, I can glorify you through a lot of comfort and convenience and prosperity, all kinds of things, God. That would be a great way for me to praise you. No, you're going to praise me through suffering. No. I don't like that as much. Lastly, where is your hope, really? Where is your hope? What is success to you? What is your joy? Where is your hope for success? Where is your hope for security? Where is your hope for joy? I mean, really. Where does your hope really lie? Where does your hope lie for victory over whatever that thing is you're struggling with? Where does your hope lie in death? And if it's not in life, the resurrection of Jesus, and in death, the return of Jesus, your hope might be off a bit. We hope for a lot of things. And if it's not Jesus, it's a fairly hopeless way to hope. Close us out. Know that only I believe those who, who truly love Jesus, and this has been something I've had to ask myself, are even interested in testing themselves. And I think that's the reason is because the love of Christ controls us. We want no, more than nothing to love Jesus, to know Jesus, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, because we know that's where life is. And those who do not love Jesus, quite frankly, could care less about testing. They, they don't even, like, why bother? And I think at the core of it is that they believe that this world is all there is. This is it. And Romans 1 tells us that they exchange the truth, that there is more, for a lie. And what happens is that individual, that couple, that family, that church searches for whatever spirit will give them whatever they want. And they pursue that spirit and listen to the spirit. Well, what will give me success? What will make me feel good? What will give me the happiness that I want or the thing that I think will make me content? So it's not arrogant for John to close with, whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. It's, just fat, it's an honest description of reality. So what characterizes your reality? What characterizes mine? Am I characterized by a desire to know truth or kind of a tendency to avoid it or ignore it? A love for Jesus is a love for the truth, and therefore I believe a Christian's life must be characterized by the pursuit of truth, of wanting to know, of desiring to know. And I will close with reminding us we have to be careful because I was an arrogant, zealous truth-finding, sin-hunter type of guy. We have to be careful not just to become good test-takers like I had many high school students do. 
the best test takers. They, could, they knew all the answers. They could get around the test, but they still <clears throat> failed to be educated. They still failed to learn. They knew how to pass the test, to get the grade. We're not interested in just getting the grade. Okay? We don't devote ourselves to developing fine-tuned crap detectors so we can spend our lives pointing at everything that stinks. That's not the goal. There's no hope in that. There's no life in that. Just as love without truth, I believe, is a message from the spirit of error, so is truth without love. Those are called good theologians who are jerks. I was one. There's a reason why John couches the testing of the spirits in this passage between passages about gospel love. So I'll close with his warning in Revelation 2, really Jesus' warning to the same church in Ephesus where he warns them and yet commends them for being good testers. He says this, Revelation 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says, good job. You're discerning. You know the spirit of error. You don't tolerate it. You call out sin. You draw lines. You say God's truth is the standard. Fantastic. He goes on. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Amen. Stand for the truth. Point out the liars. Say that's wrong. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise in the paradise of God. So here's my prayer as a church. That we become a church and we already are a church that's known to fight against the lies of false teachers. I want to be known as that. Who holds the line of truth, whether it gets applause or boos. Hey, that's fantastic, but let us also at the same time be known as a church who loves a church that, quite frankly, loves the truth so much because of our demonstrable or demonstrated love for Jesus. And that will lead us to love others. Truth without love, pff, waste of time. Good theology without love, waste of time. We must test the spirits, and the Spirit of God tells us to love God and to love others. Let's not make that mistake. And for those who honestly have listened to the spirit of error or struggling right now, whether you should be kind, whether you should be humble, whether you should be respectful of that husband that doesn't deserve it, that wife that doesn't deserve love, that person that doesn't deserve forgiveness, that is not the spirit of God. 
And we come to the table every Sunday, lifting up the body, which is the bread broken for you, and the blood shed for you, declaring that you are sinful. That Jesus is the one that had to be perfect for you. And he forgives whatever imperfection you have. But that also means that we continue to love him, we continue to imitate him, we continue to follow him, which is the truth. I pray that we'll be a church that stands for truth and calls out sin and does it lovingly so.